the best way to go around understanding customers so you can deliver products that actually meet their needs is to ground yourself in understanding the people, the problems they have, really understanding what it is that matters to them and why it matters. They're the kind of questions you want to answer when talking to users, when interviewing them. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Each Another, a podcast about designing for people and business. My name is Tom Cunningham. I'm a senior visual designer here at Each Another. Today I'm joined by one of my colleagues, one of our principal designers, Mr. Lawrence Veal. Hey Tom. How's it going, Lar? Good. Welcome back. One of the keys to having a successful product or service is really understanding your customer. And putting the customer first is a mantra for many high-performing companies. But what does that actually mean and how do we actually do it well? There are many user research methods we use, and today we're going to be talking about interviewing users. I think a good place to start is my very first contact with the user. Uh, I was a developer a good 13, 14 years ago. By pure accident, a user got in touch with Front Desk. They uh, put the call through to me and I got it really right in the chin about what the software did and didn't do, uh, particularly did badly uh, in terms of what this user wanted. As a developer with a slight interest in, I suppose, human factors, it was kind of a light bulb moment. Previously, I had my list of requirements and specifications written by a business analyst and a business person. I would go and code it, and at the end of two, three months, typical waterfall method, we'd have something at the end, and whether that matched what people actually needed uh, wasn't really asked. At least if it was, the person responsible for producing that never heard about it. Mm-hmm. So this is a real light bulb moment. From that conversation, I said, well, listen, I could call out to your office. There was a doctor who was talking to us about uh, submitting kind of forms, assessments for people looking for life insurance. So I went out to talk to the doctor and immediately I could see what the problem was. This was a very busy surgery. The prime work that was going on was actually meeting and treating patients. Then in the times between treating patients, this doctor would then fill in these forms, these medical assessment forms, and some they just looked at with a view to getting mortgage protection or life insurance, these kinds of things. So what it really came, became clear was the context in which this person worked and how our product didn't actually make it any easier to work within that context. Mm-hmm. So again, that light bulb moment kind of, for me, hit home uh, the importance of seeing a problem through the customer's eyes. So one of the questions or one of the things you stated at the outset was, uh, how do you go about doing this well? And despite that example being quite a long time ago, I don't think for many companies a lot has actually changed. Sure, we've got a lot more data, but that's not really solving the problem because we don't understand the why behind that data. We think that if we see something in aggregate form that we somehow understand the customer better, but you'll never un- you'll never truly understand the customer from looking at numbers in aggregate. So I think the best way to go around understanding customers so you can deliver products that actually meet their needs is to ground yourself in understanding the people, the problems they have, and really understanding what it is that matters to them and why it matters. They're the kind of questions you want to answer when talking to users, when interviewing them. So you're talking about a career you had before, you were a user experience designer, you were a, d- a developer and taking a very engineer-led approach. It was only when you actually went on site and saw the doctor, how he actually worked with, with the tools you're building, that you built that empathy. And that's so important to, to design, yeah? Yeah, I think empathy is a word that's thrown quite uh, thrown around quite a lot in design. But I think Tim Brown, I think from IDEO, had a really nice quote uh, that empathy is at the heart of the design. So without understanding what other people see or feel design is a pointless task so what we were designing wasn't just engineering led it was business and engineering led it wasn't end user led as well so there wasn't that desirability piece of the puzzle uh, as part of the process at that point mm-hmm. 
as a design method in this particular situation, it's better to use interviews as opposed to something else, yeah? Yeah, well, I think it's not necessarily opposed to something else. It's along with something else. This has kind of hit home quite recently when I was working with a client. and We asked them for, well, what research do you already have? And how do you understand the customer on the back of that? And what we got were a lot of reports largely based on aggregate numbers. So there was lots of analytics-based stuff. A lot of survey-based stuff, and this is a particular bugbear of mine, survey-based stuff dressed up as interviews. So the report might read, we interviewed a thousand customers, but what they actually did was they surveyed a thousand customers. They did it over the phone and it was very much survey-based questions. So they're addressing up kind of a quantitative study with uh, qualitative. So it was very clear to me, at least, that they thought they knew enough about people from these aggregate numbers as they call them but listen there are lots of methods and it's not a question of interviews good surveys bad or anything like that even focus groups have their place it's just knowing where that place is you know so you would use interviews in combination with other methods like uh, surveys uh, analytics and you're trying to triangulate some things are good for what you're trying to get at which is uh, the emotion the motivations the behavior uh, and interviews to me are I think are underutilized throughout for lots of people we talk to hmm. I suppose whether it's interviews surveys or whatever the quality of the, the actual questions is, is, is key to this as well so you, you can be asking lots of questions but if they're leading or if they're you know the wrong questions to be asking then you're getting the wrong that wrong data back oh for sure I mean there's there's a real art and science to how you interview users in particular and the planning and everything that goes into what you want to get out of a piece of research is paramount to understanding well, what tool is the right thing to answer those questions like one of the things with each another that we do that I think is particularly important for, for the work we do and how we do it is that we don't split out researchers from designers, though some companies do. Now, this may be originally down to necessity rather than by design, but for us, it has tremendous benefits, particularly when it comes to design. You don't just point back to a piece in a report. Even if that research was good, you didn't experience it. So it's like understanding someone else's holiday through a series of photos than actually having been there. Mm -hmm. And having been there, you can draw the dots in your brain in the subconscious. And that always comes out in one form or another in the design. So it's really important for us, at least, to keep research and design close together. And it also means we're always thinking about the so what of the research. What does this mean? How do we apply this when the time comes? But it boils down to running a series of good interviews, spending, I suppose, a little bit more time with fewer people uh, rather than sp spreading yourselves too thin on lots of diff different techniques. If there was one technique I would take, particularly for the type of design work that we do, it would be to do interviews uh, and then something what else. But again, it'll come back to the research question. Okay, so we're talking a lot about interviews. So how do you actually run a good interview? What does it actually look like? Well, I think first off, it's a skill. And like any skill, uh, it takes a lot of practice. But I think the types of interviewing that we do is broadly broken down into three parts. Uh, planning, you know, who you're going to talk to, what are you going to talk to them about, what do you hope to find out. Two, then it's conducting those interviews. So where are you going to do it? What kinds of questions uh, are you going to ask? And then lastly, what do you do with what you found in those interviews? So the analysis or the synthesis or analysis and synthesis mm -hmm. of the findings from those interviews. So can we go into a bit more detail on, say, planning, for example? Best place to start with planning is to clearly state your goals. So what are your research objectives? What is it you're trying to find out? So a few years ago, we worked with a bank and they really wanted to find out what do people expect from 
banking on their mobile devices. Mm -hmm. That was it. Quite a broad research topic. And we felt that interviews was one of the ways. We also used analytics and, and some other research methods. But the interviews really helped us bring out what was important to people and what wasn't by asking them about their current behavior, uh, the current pain points. So we were able to, you know, bring those insights all the way through to design, to design features that made a real difference in those people's lives. And then created a kind of a nice positive differentiator between the bank that we were working for and their competitors. Mm -hmm. I think I remember the, these findings. Basically, the, the people wanted parity between what they could do on their mobile and what they could do on the desktop. Yeah, the, the, one of the biggest sources of frustration was that you could do X, Y, and Z. You could do certain transactions on a desktop, but you couldn't do it on their mobile app. Mm -hmm. And the most interesting finding, I think, was what wasn't said, was when we asked the people uh, that we were interviewing, show me how you do that on your phone. They'd actually found a workaround or a hack where they logged into the desktop website on their mobiles, did whatever it was they needed to do, and not go to the mobile app at all. Mm -hmm. uh, some people, when they heard of doing banking on their mobile, didn't even think of their app because they didn't have it. They hadn't downloaded it, mm -hmm. hadn't even heard of it. Uh, you know, so this was a huge blind spot. When we thought about people doing banking on their mobile, we assumed it was through, through the app. Mm -hmm. uh, this lesson was, was a good one learned that actually people went to the desktop site, could do everything that they needed to do because they were interacting with desktop top site yeah but it through, also had through their mobile though. exactly yeah. through the mobile browser exactly and what that meant was that we had to reframe what it actually it meant to uh, manage channels versus managing products across channels f for that particular bank mm -hmm. so the second point you mentioned there was on conducting the interviews themselves yeah and i think this is the key piece because with with any project or any product there's going to be a huge amount of experience that you bring to it whether you know it or not. So I think the first thing about conducting an interview is leaving your assumptions and biases behind you. I think Stephen Portugal, the author of Interviewing Users, refers to this as checking your worldview at the door, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. So going into it with a very broad, open mindset, we call it the beginner's mindset. Mm -hmm. So assuming you know nothing, tell yourself you know nothing, and you're really there um, trying to figure out how this whole thing works in the minds of our users. Yeah. So starting broad before you actually narrow in, I think, is the key piece to, to starting a good interview, at least. It's easier said than done, though. You have to constantly check yourself as you're, as you're going through the process, I think. Yeah, I, I found it recently where an interview wasn't going particularly well. And I kicked myself, but I asked a very leading question, which is probably one thing you shouldn't do. In hindsight, it was a terrible question to ask. But what it did manage to do was get the interview back on track, which was going going south. Yeah, not so well. Exactly, yeah. So I think listening well is a key thing. One of the, I think the key principles behind running a good interview is shutting the hell up and letting the person you're interviewing do most of the talking. The other thing I think is asking the right types of questions. So very open-ended. So what I mean by that is questions that just can't be answered with a yes, a simple yes or a simple no. Doesn't really get you anywhere. Not suggesting a possible answer. And the one I think that's the hardest with people who just start on their journey of, of user interviewing, it's the hardest to get across, which is leaving the awkward silence for as long as you possibly can, even when it's just really uncomfortable. If you're on a date, this probably wouldn't work very well. But uh, the person you're interviewing, uh, I think in this scenario, will often fill that gap and elaborate on the previous answer. And that's where you uh, really get kind of rich stories. And really what you're after is not just answers to questions. You're actually after stories that users can tell you. And I think that's one of the key points where they're richer interviews like this are richer than surveys. You know, surveys, you go through predefined questions. You're generally ticking boxes, you know, this, this or this, uh, all of the above. And then it's usually at the end, you get to like, something where it's form field. Any other comments? And I always find when I'm at that stage, you're kind of a bit jaded 
you know, you feel like I think I feel like I've given you enough details. You've asked me this stuff and I might just put in some, you know, unless there's something really detailed I want to put in. But I think you're missing that as opposed to an interview when you've got someone in that position where they're more likely to, to open up and be a bit more forthcoming and even emphatic about the points that, that they think that work and don't work. Yeah, I think so. The um, With surveys, there are kind of a, they can be a blunt instrument. I think there's a couple of problems with surveys. First of all, they're very easy to deploy, right? So SurveyMonkey, any of the great tools mm-hmm. allow anyone to put a survey live very quickly. A couple of problems arise. One, questions have to be perfectly written. Otherwise, there's ambiguity in what you're actually asking and versus what the survey participant thinks you're asking. And once you fired at a survey, you're stuck, like it's it's gone out. Mm. Uh, and you don't know it's a bad survey until it comes back. And you're unlikely to think it's a bad survey because you produced it. So you're likely to propagate uh, the ambiguity of the answers, if not downright lies at times uh, in some surveys. So I'm not totally, I'm not anti-survey, but often they're used as the only research method. And I've seen that again and again with clients still. Uh, there's still not enough of the, the interviewing um, people. So one of the, the classic ones is, you know, asking a survey, what do you do in your bank? And a series of multiple choice questions, check my balance was one. That's interesting. You check your balance. You know, it, it, it's kind of a given, I guess. Mm-hmm. But when we went to interviews, we uh, asked people, tell me about the last time you logged on to banking on your mobile. And notice we didn't say app. We just talked about banking on their mobile. So we got that insight of people logging onto the desktop site to get the things done that they couldn't through the app. So hacking the system, if you like. But what was very interesting was how people talked about where they were when they checked their balance. And oftentimes it was in a shop. They were queuing for the checkout and they wanted to make sure they had enough money for the transaction so they wouldn't have, you know, the machine and the clerk kind of look awkwardly at them telling them, you know, insufficient funds. Mm-hmm. So what they do is they check their balance. If they didn't have enough balance, they transfer some money from their savings to their current account so that that process at the point of sale would go very smoothly mm-hmm. and avoid all embarrassment. So the feature that eventually came out of that was not just a quick balance feature. It was an embarrassment saving feature. And just knowing that context and that why behind people do what they do and where they do it made it far more, I suppose, desirable internally to get it done. People could understand the why of why we were presenting that as a as a really necessary feature. Mm-hmm. And if once people internally, so you've got compliance, you've got risk and you've got IT security and you've got the developers um, and any business owners in there, they could understand why it was that this person was checking their balance. And with armed with that kind of empathy or bringing that empathy into the room, I think there was a greater chance of that feature actually shipping rather than not shipping if it was just on a backlog list. Yeah. So understanding the why behind these things. Absolutely. It's just an item list where you're like, that's a nice to have. But when you actually see the impact it has on the actual the end user. Exactly. It, 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 yeah. jump, it jumps up that list of priorities. Exactly. Yeah. So where's the where's the best place to conduct these interviews? In uh, so far as possible, I think you should do it in their place, and that can mean a number of things. So if you're dealing with kind of consumers on some sort of B two C type uh, product or service, uh, it may be their house. Now that's actually easier than it sounds because if you set this up right and plan it well, it's generally not a problem. Mm-hmm. It could be their place of work, their office. And we've got, gone into a lot of offices and seen, you know, post-its up on screens that have the passwords up there or not using tools the way tools should have been or meant were meant to have been used by, uh, you know, the original designers or product teams. It could even mean just getting on a WebEx and seeing what's on the desktop and how they use the tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, so wherever you can get context, I think, is where you need to go. Doing it in a lab is not 
ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a focus group room or, or a user test lab isn't often the best place to do it. Mm-hmm. Someone's very, very aware that they're being observed. They're being, they've come into this alien location, even if it's comfortable. It's not as comfortable as their own home, where they're more likely to open up about things. Yeah, I think well, it's 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 ethnographic in the sense of you want to go out to where people are and, and where they do the things they normally do. Mm-hmm. Because when you when you get context, you'll see things that might seem like small invisible problems, ones that won't actually show up if you bring people into a lab, mm-hmm. um, or won't show up in a survey. So I was working on a smart heating device a couple of years ago, and when we interviewed someone in their home that. The house felt cold. So that was the trigger for a question we asked. So uh, we didn't say the house is cold, you know, but we said, so when do you normally turn on your heating? You know, um, so that led to a kind of another series of questions and really useful insights uh, as to how difficult these programmable thermostats are. People can't bloody use them, you know, and that insight may not have come out had we not been in the house. You know, so after asking that question, they answered their answer was that they find it difficult to use the tools. Yeah, they, I think we moved in from summer into kind of the autumn, it was a particularly cold day, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think they were still on their summertime settings that someone else had set for them, maybe right. a, okay. a carer or a son or a daughter or someone like that. Mm-hmm. Couldn't ha- figure out how to turn their own bloody heating on. So this was just gold when it, we brought it back as, a, as a, an insight. Of course, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you'll see these kinds of artifacts, you know, and, and these can trigger those questions and provide richer insights. So they really provoke those kind of questions you've never actually thought to ask. Mm-hmm. And that's why not having a script is often a good thing. And more experienced, seasoned interviews, interviewers will go off a guide rather than a script mm-hmm. where you can actually go down that route um, based on a trigger or an artifact or something that you've noticed in the environment in which the user normally is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember one instance when we were working on an, an, an IoT project, an Internet of Things project, where we were basically connected workers and the guys who were doing a very manual paper-based process. And we went and shadowed them and had a look and, and did ethnographic research around them or researched the ethnographic elements. And we noticed that there was, we, 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 we shadowed a couple of different people and some people had used the paperwork and some people had like a, a number spreadsheet in their iPad that they were using to capture the data. Um, and someone else used something else. They're all using different devices. And just by observing them and just seeing how they do things, they have their own ways, their own little quirks, and then you can they can trigger the questions that you want that you can ask, and they can feedback insights that you wouldn't have expected. Yeah, I mean, it, a great example was when we were working for a, a huge company uh, based in the UK. One of the interviews was with someone in their house, and we happened to bring a, a video camera on a tripod. And the guy had to leave the room, go upstairs to look for a password for something. And this awkward pause was, it was so awkward. Like it was about two minutes. This is in the middle of the interview. In, yeah, in, yeah. The, the interview, yeah. Yeah. And this was, this was, this pause, we were fine with it, but, you know, because it was real life. Uh, this guy had to go and find this stuff up in his laptop upstairs or his desktop where he saved it, mm. put it on a poster or something. But when he came back, about two minutes had elapsed. We replayed that video to our client. You know, so they could experience that awkwardness and that awkwardness. So they felt the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, the, that's where, you know, pathos or empathy comes from of this user who just couldn't figure out why he needs to log in the first place. And when he did have to go f- searching for a password, mm-hmm. you know, so that was really powerful, I think. Uh, and you don't capture that if you ask someone to do something in, in a kind of hygienic kind of lab, if you like. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned WebEx uh, for interviewing. So uh, uh, some previous projects, I think actually the same project I was talking about earlier, we at a stage where we had a prototype that was at a very early stage, we 
uh, arranged to, to do remote user testing with a couple of these servicemen that were based over in the UK and in, in uh, Holland, in the Netherlands as well. And what we did basically flew the WebEx to their screen and walked them through, I think it was an Xero prototype, it was very basic. And like we were, we were just letting them work, work, work their way through and they were, we could see the points where they were like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Or no, I don't understand what that means at all. Um, it was a really good way of, it was actually a really effective way of getting those insights, you know, they were basically an hour long interviews each, as opposed to us getting on planes, flying over to the, to the location, setting up a user testing lab, you know, because we were at that stage where it wasn't actually that high fidelity. We got the insights we wanted in an effective way because it was done remotely. Yeah, exactly. I think particularly for remote interviews, phones are great, you know, talking to people. But even better is just seeing a little bit more context, you know, and you can use other methods like, can you please take a photo of your workstation or photos mm -hmm. and, and talk me through what's on your desk, mm -hmm. um, you know, or photos of the corridor or photos of, of whatever the thing is. Mm -hmm. we're, we're looking you know, any aspect of the service. So these are kind of prompts or triggers that we can then ask about to, to understand more about what it is that people care about. So you touched on using a script versus a guide. What's the difference? Well, I suppose a script is what it says, meaning that you'll follow everything that's on that script. And this can be quite tempting because colleagues, uh, maybe more senior colleagues or clients may insist on a script or ask for a script. I would urge really to resist that temptation um, because if a script is signed off, all that kind of bureaucratic nonsense when it comes to research, uh, you, you kind of, if you have a script, you, you feel you have to stick to it. Yeah. And therefore, you're already limiting your, your, I suppose, your worldview as you go in. You're not keeping it broad. Um, you're just sticking narrowly to that script. So you might actually want to react to one of those triggers, those artifacts, something that the user has said, uh, and dig a little deeper on that. So you'll always miss what you never asked. So that's why I'd say use a guide that kind of yeah. covers your topics or themes that you want to talk about. Uh, and that'll give you the license to go off if you need to. Uh, onto something that you know a tangent of some kind yeah but then to come back to cover off all the things that you need to cover so it's that kind of i would try and keep it as minimal as possible in terms of a script and, and edge more towards that guide makes sense yeah so what do you find is the most effective way of setting up an interview who's involved what do you bring ah okay uh well i suppose first of all letting the person you're interviewing know what you want to find out uh, without telling them too much um, you really want to break the ice before and at the start of the interview. In terms of who should go with you, uh, you should always probably do it in pairs, not just for health and safety reasons, there's also practical reasons. So uh, the interviewer kind of, kind of keeps the conversation and the questions going and the whole interview flowing. Uh, and then a note taker who listens into what's being said and puts notes down. Uh, doesn't try to infer too much, just takes down what was said and there's a time later during the analysis phase to infer what the, what was meant by what or was said uh, and also hope you know it, it again this needs to be um, planned for it also needs to you need to make sure you communicate it to the people that you're going to interview that you'd like to record that interview uh, video is often good and sound one so that you can go back over the stuff and two that you can present some of those snippets to people uh, as an example of the types of stuff you found so again bringing that empathy into the room with you into clients yeah you're dealing with people so manage your expectations yeah. exactly yeah 
so I think that's that's probably it at a minimum. Obviously, if you're visiting people's homes or workstations, there isn't much room for more than two people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we've brought three. Uh, we've brought a kind of a, a camera guy um, who managed to capture artifacts and that kind of stuff. But really, it's, it's I think a minimum of two. Mm-hmm. On that point with the cameraman, I remember one of the one of the particular interview sessions that you had. The outputs really benefited from that extra from the cameraman with multiple cameras. It made it much easier to actually look back at the at the the footage as opposed to just a single angle you know it can be a little bit cold and it can kind of wear on you a little bit when you're watching it for a length of time true yeah I think and again just I'd urge caution as well that added a veneer of uh, polish polish and high fidelity to the research that we did now research is generally messy mm-hmm. And it was really, really powerful for the client. But just because you do it on a really nice camera doesn't make it good research, you know. But it, I, I believe it was good research and it was augmented by the fact that we had good footage to go along with that good research because this was in an organization that had not done much, if any, qualitative research. No user interviews before. It was all based on analytics and numbers. Uh, so we really needed to hit home, not just the findings of this particular piece, but why you should do research uh, of this type in future. So your interview is done. What do you do with all the stuff? You mentioned an analysis and synthesis. How do you go about that? Yeah, I think, um, so really what you an- need to answer with any piece of research is so what? What are you going to do about it? What does it mean for us? So the first thing is getting everything down. So coding the research. And by that, I mean things like tagging what you've seen and heard, asking the questions, what do we see? What do we hear? What might it mean? Uh, and then grouping those themes um seeing the relationships between things, for example. And through synthesis, you're kind of building it back up into something meaningful and actionable. And for us, I think where we differ with many of our competitors, I think at least, is that it's really important that our clients are active participants in that piece because it's not just it's reading the report or listening to a presentation, but they actually have started to digest it. They've started the synthesis piece themselves with us. Yeah. And I think that's what marks us... Um, as as d- different people to work with, it's that whole first and second hand news thing you're talking about. Exactly. It? So it's like experiencing someone else's holiday by the photos they've shown you, rather than being on it. At least we're taking them, you know, towards the end of the holiday, if you like. I think that's a good example because nobody wants to look at other people's holiday photos. No, and but I mean these kinds of things have so those little unseen um, problems that we've identified through this type of research, where the penny drops with clients. For example, I was interviewing a broker in his home. He works from home. A financial broker and he had two recycling bins which is unusual you know, places you put paper so I just kind of remarked again I observed it first and I said listen I see you have two recycling bins and we're on friendly terms at this point so I felt I had the license to ask for that and he goes Jesus tell me about it one is for my own household consumption plastic bottles this kind of stuff the other is for all the paperwork he gets from the companies that uh, he sends business to. I said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, no, I get so much paperwork. Anything that's sent to the client is sent to me by paper. And I went, okay, wow. And what do you do with it? Well, by the time I get it, I've already read it online or the client has phoned me about it. Mm-hmm. So already, so it's old news and it's on paper. So all, it does, all I do is have a quick look, put it in the shredder and put it in the bin. Uh, and then when we asked the client, how much are you guys actually spending on... Uh, paper versus digital channels mm-hmm. and it was in the millions per year you know so instantly there is a, a line drawn between a little little bitty research insight in an interview to what could be a massive cost savings for the business and a better way of working a more real time way of working for not just themselves but their clients and their brokers mm-hmm. so we're talking recycling bins there obviously uh, any other interesting examples um oh yeah we're working with uh, 
uh, a supermarket recently and we did interviews in people's homes. Now, what a lot of research in the survey or aggregate type or market research will tell you is, you know, our customers are very busy people. You know, what does that actually mean? I think everyone's busy. I, I don't think anyone, I know anyone who's not busy. Yeah. But when we went to people's homes, we spotted this thing on their worktops. It looked like an old, uh, kind of a modern pressure cooker. But what it was is this one pot device you plug in, uh, you put all your ingredients, like your meat, your vegetables, whatever else needs spices or herbs. Uh, you press the button, you go off to work, and eight hours later, you've got a gorgeous slow-cooked casserole or stew or something like that ready for you when you return. And so that, was again, was a trigger, seeing this thing. And we saw it again and again and again in lots of places. Now, someone must have been doing a deal on these things mm. after Christmas or something. But it, it kind of, it was one thing we didn't expect to see it kind of brought real meaning to what it means to be busy in the context of food. Mm -hmm. You know, you want a really nutritious home-cooked meal for yourself and your family, but you don't have the time in which to do that because you've got a full-time job. And what does this then mean for that client of ours that we're on behalf of whom we were doing the research? Well, it meant that of all the content they were producing around recipes, a really uh, strong one would be kind of this one-pot recipes. They didn't have that tagged or publicized anywhere, and it was still a thing. We could st see from behavior that this was still something that people used. And the hardest thing about that is finding inspiration on what new things to cook, because despite being nutritious and tasty, your family gets sick of the same meal over and over again. So it's it was about how do you inspire people to find new recipes on this particular particular theme so that again was that dot from seeing something on a worktop in a couple of places that we visited through to here's something you could be doing with your content that will resonate more with uh, your customers okay so empathy is one thing that you get from interviews is there anything else in closing so i think empathy is one thing but, but an often used quote around software is the hardest thing about it is deciding what to build. So with interviews, I think you're obviously looking for empathy and to bring that empathy out with you to share. But you're also looking to broaden your collective understanding of who we're designing for and what they truly, madly, deeply care about. And if you get to that kind of level of understanding where you care about what they care about, then you're expanding the possibilities of what you might build to satisfy those needs and you actually care to, to actually bring it to fruition. Mm -hmm. So these types of insights, I think, are the key to unlocking creativity, differentiation, innovation. Uh, they really are the fuel to, that can help drive all of this, really understanding your customer. And that's as simple as it gets. Thanks very much for your time today, Lar. Cheers, Tom. Thanks for having me. For more insights, go to eachanother.com. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to Conversations with Each Another on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time.